Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Emma Suthon is an author, podcaster and ancient historian. Her new book, History of the Roman Empire in 21 Women, does exactly what it says on the tin, sidestepping the long list of battles, consuls and generals that normally passes for the grand narrative of Rome to focus on the lives of women, including vestal virgins, sex workers, empresses, poets and saints. I sat down with her last week to find out more. Emma, before we get stuck in, can you recap for those of us without the classics background what the traditional narrative of Rome is? Like, something about two boys suckling on a wolf. (laughs) Yeah, basically, two boys, a wolf, uh, they're kicked out of this. It's Romulus and Remus is how it starts, with these two boys who are rejected by their city and then suckled by a wolf, then have a big fight about who gets to name the city, And then it goes from there. Romulus wins the fight by murdering somebody and then it's kings for a while. Then they overthrow the kings. Brutus overthrows the kings and institutes the Republic. Then there's a Republic which is glorious in every way and is perfect and wonderful and nothing bad ever happens except all the bad things, during which time Rome massively expands all of its power. And then despite the wonderful perfectness of the Republic, it gets overthrown when Julius Caesar is assassinated and then it's emperors for several hundred years. And then where it all ends when um, some terrible barbaric Huns and Goths come in and destroy everybody's good Roman fun. Not the fun kind of Goths who wear a lot of eyeliner. No, disappointingly. Distinct lack of eyeliner. More a lot of kind of looking sad. <laughs> the uh, maleness of Rome is a big part of its foundational mythology. Romans believed that their early city-state was exclusively male, and for entirely practical reasons, this presented some problems. So who were the first mythic men in Rome, and what did they decide to do about their quote-unquote woman problem? Yeah, they do have a woman problem because Romulus, when he starts his city, has a very small band of personal friends who are his first guys. And then he decides that he needs more people because you can't have a city with just 12 people. That's just a camping trip. And so he opens the city up to anybody who is escaping slavery or a criminal prosecution or anyone who just wants to have a good time in a new city and try something new, but only to men. Men can escape their situation, but women are not allowed. Women can only come with men. And weirdly enough, people who are escaping slavery, criminal 
prosecutions and would like to have a go at trying a new situation rarely bring their wives with them. Um, They rarely have wives that are willing or have wives at all. So their first attempt is when they find that they've got hundreds and hundreds of men but absolutely no women is um, to go around to all the nearby cities, uh, kind of Etruscan cities in Rome, in Italy, and say, can we marry your daughters? They get Roman citizenship. We've got all of these, this ragtag bunch of lads um, (laughs) that I'm sure you would want to marry your daughters to. And weirdly, all of the people from very ancient, very respectable cities all around Italy are not keen on marrying their daughters to a bunch of ex-slaves and criminals so instead Romulus comes up with this brilliant idea he invents a god declares that he has discovered him and that he's going to have a party in his honor and invites all of the cities around to send their best men and their families around to come and celebrate this new god that he's found sorry who um, is this god who is this god what's he the god of <laughs> uh, he is a suppo- he's not really a god of anything he's just a very ancient god that he claims to have discovered he says he was digging to build a thing and he's found this altar buried and so it, it was a very ancient god that everyone's forgot about and now he has to, nice. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I respect that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a kind of the Romans have so many gods that it kind of seems quite plausible because they've just got gods of everything. And it seems perfectly plausible to everybody that they might have just forgotten one for a while uh, <laughs> and then they feel bad about it. So they all go around to have some games and everybody wants to have a bit of a nosy around the city. And then at a given point, Romulus gives a signal and all of the Roman men stand up grab the unmarried women and some of the married women that have come to the party and kidnap them and run away with them and chase out the fathers and brothers and the Etruscan men out of the city with arms. And these women, the uh, Sabine women, as they're called, are um, going to be forcibly married to the Romans and therefore become the first Roman women, which is exactly what happens. Now, there are two women in this story who stand out and who are incredibly important to Roman writers of all genres, and they're Topea and Hercilia. Why do they matter? And what moral lessons did the Romans use them to illustrate? They both give us a very different lessons. But the main one, I think, is that how important women are to the foundation of Rome, because it cannot exist without them. Topea is one of the very few non-Sabine women in early Roman history. Um, And she is a woman or a girl, really, who causes the Romans so many problems because she's a very ancient story and they don't understand it at all and they try really hard to make sense of it. What she does is she opens the gates of Rome while the Sabine men are besieging it. So they're all outside trying to get their women back. And she opens the gates of Rome in the middle of the night and lets them in. And there are about a million versions of her story. The most popular one or the most one that gets told the most commonly is that she uh, saw the Sabine men and saw that they all wore big gold bracelets and big gold rings, kind of mafia style. And so she was so entranced by these that she offered to the king that she would open the gates and let them in if they gave her what they wore on their left arms. And then when she opened the gates and after they had let in, because she had betrayed Rome for gold, the Sabine men all just threw their shields at her and buried her to death under the shields. And the moral lesson, that version, is that women are quite stupid, easily tricked, and also love gold more than they love anything else in the world. That there is this story, all of these stories that 
in the versions that we have them come from the late Republic and the early Empire, when Roman writers are absolutely obsessed with the fact that they're getting really rich and some of them feel a bit bad about it and they think that luxury is corrupting. So that version is a very kind of corrupting women are corrupted by luxury and if you do things for gold then it is inherently bad and at the same time though they are very aware that every single year sacrifices are offered to Tarpeia in the center of Rome and they don't know why (laughs) and they can't work out why they are doing sacrifices to this woman who betrayed Rome but the reason they're giving sacrifices basically is that it explains how it's basically an excuse for how the Sabines got into the city of Rome because without Tarpeia opening the gates it kind of looks like the Romans lost a fight and they lost a fight and let them not only did they lose them but the Sabines were able to get right into the city and they can't have that they can't have Romulus losing a fight they can't have Romulus (laughs) um, the greatest king the world has ever known being rubbish at war Uh, so they blame it on a girl and that means that they get to keep their kind of masculine greatness at war but at the same time they get to explain how this terrible thing happened Um, the guys are the worst yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, who's Hercilia and Hercilia is one of the Sabine women and she um, is remembered as Romulus's wife so she's the one that he picks as his wife and she's the only woman really who gets to speak because what happens is after Tarpeia has let the Sabines in the Romans and Sabines are having a battle in the centre of Rome. The, this is kind of the final showdown between the upstarts and the old guard And all of a sudden, the Sabine women come running out of their homes, come running down the hill into the valley and stand in between the two armies. And Hercilia, as their kind of leader, as the wife of the king of Rome, steps forward and says, you've married us and now we have some children because apparently their dad's just left them there long enough that they had some children. (laughs) Um, And as a result, you're not just enemies anymore. You are now fathers-in-law and sons-in-law you are father and son you are brothers you are grandparents of these people's children you are not just enemies you're not strangers you are now family because you married us and as a result if you kill each other and in this war then you will be committing parricide and more importantly no matter who wins this we're going to be sad we're either going to lose the fathers of our children or our husbands or we're going to lose our fathers and brothers and um, uncles and grandfathers and so whoever wins this war we as the women and our children will lose and you get this as a result that everybody puts down their arms and goes oh god we didn't think this through but what we have done is made a family and that is the core of what Roman society is which is that it is centered entirely on the family on enhancing the family and on protecting the family on having children and protecting your children and on marrying so that you can make connections to make your family better and in that story in what Hercilia says in Livy and says when you marry, you create something more than just yourself and therefore you can't go to war with each other. She creates Rome and she creates the very core of Roman society and what it's all about. And the story of just Romulus creates a city is just Romulus building a wall. But when Hercilia gets involved, then you get an actual city with people in it that matters and that can last longer than 20 minutes. 
There are two different versions of the manipulation of bloodlines in this book um, and in the history of Rome. One (laughs) is in the Republican era, what we've discussed, building bigger families to build alliances by trading your kids in marriage. But there is another version of this from um, Augustus onward, which is inbreeding because (laughs) your family is the purest and best and you're the emperor, right? So can you tell us about how Augustus changes marriage customs and instigates authoritarian reforms of sex and how his daughter, Julia, is both a victim of these and a rebel against them? Yeah, so Augustus institutes a monarchy without telling anybody that he's instituting a monarchy, which is a really impressive thing to do. And one of the ways that he is able to do this is by changing how people see the family and changing how they consider their priorities in politics and in life. Because for such a long time, marriage and and what you do with your wives um, and how you pick a wife was to do less with whether you liked them um, or whether you thought you would be happy with them and entirely about whether you, their dad usually, um, or their brother was a useful political alliance. And so for most of Republican history amongst elite families, what you see is younger women marrying older men because men marry their daughters to their friends, basically, uh, which is gross. But what Augustus does is he makes it so that it is no longer, when he introduced a monarchy, he makes it so that there is no particular use in marrying your daughter to your friend because there's no where to go. The only way that you can get political influence is through Augustus now. He owns everything. Once he becomes the emperor in 27 BC, he is, uh, there's nothing that anybody can do outside of Augustus that will get them anything better than what they already have. And so he institutes all of these rules which reorient how people see marriage. He introduced adultery law for the first time, um, or like a really harsh adultery law for the first time where you can kill people for committing adultery. And he institutes uh, laws about that encourage people to get married, stay married, and have lots and lots of children, um, and then focus on their children rather than on themselves, basically. So he makes it so that um, you can only have certain political appointments if you have children or if you are married which some people try to manipulate which is quite fun like they'll get married the day before the appointments um, are decided and then get divorced the day after um, which they occasionally get into trouble for he makes it so that there are limits on how long you're allowed to remain widowed or divorced so if you're widowed then you can't just stay single forever he makes it so that there are incentives for women to have children so if you have three children um, and they live then you get to be um, released from guardianship which means that you can be a legal adult for the first time, which is nice, and basically forces people to reorient seeing children as something that is useful for their career in terms of they can marry them off and makes the family something that you have that can benefit you in a completely different way. They're no longer kind of bargaining chips and then now more a thing that you can have just for your own personal gain. 
And these rules are really unpopular, hugely unpopular. People hate them, um, <laughs> but they stick around. He never backs down on them. Um, and he forces people to think about their kind of nuclear families in a different way. And then he, with Julia, his only biological child, uh, institutes monarchical dynastic strategies, basically. When you're a monarch, then... Um, and your power is going to be something that can be inherited, then you have completely different dynastic strategies than you would otherwise. Ideally, you have a son, and it just kind of goes father-son, but Augustus never has a son because the gods hate him. Um, so instead he has a daughter, and he marries his daughter off to people that he wants to be his son. He makes sons-in-law his sons. Julia is born to his second wife, not Livia, who's the one that everybody knows about. Um, they never have any children. And she is kind of living a happy, normal life until all of a sudden, when she's about 16 or 17, her father becomes emperor of the entire Roman Empire and her life completely changes. She is suddenly swept into a into a palace and is completely forbidden from talking to people outside of the palace because now access to Julia means access to the king and if Julia was to for example run away with somebody and get pregnant then she's created an heir to the throne which would be absolutely impossible to bear so Augustus starts marrying her off to people that he wants to be his son basically or that he wants to inherit his throne first he marries her to her cousin which is where the inbreeding starts that um, gets really inbreedy after a while um, and she's one of the first young Roman elite women to marry someone of her own age. They're both like 15 years old. Then he marries her to his best friend. And then when his best friend dies, he marries her to his stepson, Tiberius. Um, he also adopts all of her sons out from under her. So um, she has sons, he adopts them. And she goes along with it very patiently for a long time until he marries her to Tiberius, who she despises almost as much as Tiberius despises her. She is quite a kind of fun party girl. Like all of the stories are about her, of her telling jokes and wearing nice dresses and skipping about with handsome men. And all of the stories about Tiberius are the exact opposite of that, are just him being grumpy. They hate each other completely. And when Tiberius takes himself into exile... Julia kind of goes off the rails completely. She rebels against her father specifically by having lots and lots of sex in very public places with people that there's no way he could ever forgive her having sex with. So he has sex. She's sleeping with Mark Antony's son, the only son of Mark Antony's that we know survives. She starts sleeping with him. She is sleeping with people like in the middle of the forum. She had sex allegedly on the rostrum which is the uh, like speakers platform the political where everybody stands to give their very important speeches and which Augustus had decorated with uh, the ships that he had defeated at Actium when he defeated Mark Antony so he'd taken those ships put them on the rostrum to, in order to declare his thing and then Julia his daughter had sex with Mark Antony's son on top of it um, and so it is as far as rebellions go against this idea that she has to be the most perfect, perfect person and has to be a vessel for his his inherited power. She really rebels against it. And as a result, he is so furious. 
he gets furious at any sense of any kind of betrayal, but he considers this to be treason and he has her exiled to an island for the rest of her life. And anytime anybody mentions her name, he says that he wishes she had killed herself. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wow. I mean, he should have had Mark Antony's son killed, surely, but let's not get into that. <laughs> he has one of them killed, but uh, the oldest one. But he's he's surprisingly lenient when he wants to be. He's not when he doesn't. If he's like personally angry, then he has a tendency to poke people's eyes out. But he, he was surprisingly lenient to Mark Antony's children. And I mean, I think you say at one point in the book, he actually wanted history to remember him as a benevolent and lenient guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which, it, which it doesn't lesson. at all, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's always has one eye on what he's going to look like. And so there's this letter that is preserved where he says that he forgave people at a dinner party that like whenever they lost to him at playing dice, he would forgive them the debt because he knew that that kind of story about him would raise him to immortal glory. Munificent. Yeah. We've spoken so far about women who are at the centre of power, but I'd like to talk about one of the ordinary women in the book, my favourite of the 21. It's Hispala Fasinia. Yeah. And her story really tells us a great deal about sex and religion and liberty in the Republic. And it's just a great story. So can you <laughs> tell us that? It is a great story. So Hispalia is a... When we meet her, she is a freed woman so she's an uh was previously enslaved and she has been freed either at the death of her previous owner or in under some other circumstances um and she is working as a famous sex worker as a famous prostitute the word that is used to describe her kind of the worst word that you can use to describe a sex worker in latin it is the rudest way you can describe one so she's not like high class courtesan she is like brothel sex worker but she is very famous for her work um and she also has a boyfriend which is quite sweet and one day her boyfriend comes to her and tells her that he can't see her for a few days because he has to be chased for 10 days because he is going to be initiated into the rites of Bacchus by his mother and Hispana in uh, an unexpected turn of events absolutely loses her mind um, and barricades him into a room and won't let him out until he agrees that he will not 
be initiated into these Bacchic rites. At the time, now, it's hard to imagine not kind of knowing what the implications of the rites of Bacchus are, but the implication there is that he has no idea what he is getting himself into when his mum says, oh, I'm just going to take you down to the the Bacchic rites (laughs) Um, and we're going to have a Bacchanalia and it's fine, it's fine. But Hispana uh, admits that she knows what this means um, and she tells him that he absolutely has to promise that he won't do this because it is a an organisation that will absolutely ruin him, if not kill him, and that she has experience of this, that she was forcibly initiated and that uh, it was the worst thing that ever happened to her, which is pretty bad for a formerly enslaved sex worker. Um, so he goes home and he says to his mum, oh, Hispala says I shouldn't do it. <laughs> they don't take that very well and they kick him out of the house because it is kind of revealed at some point that his mother and stepfather have spent all of the money that Ebutius, his name is, the boyfriend, was supposed to inherit from his father. So he's been left money by his deceased dad. Um, They have spent all of the money and so they have come up with this plan that they're going to initiate him into the Bacchic rites and hopefully he will be killed either during the rites or as a result of something that happens there. And Abutius goes and escalates this to an aunt, who escalates it to a friend, who escalates it to the consul, um, and you get this kind of backroom conversational network of women talking to one another, whereby what starts as a kind of minor crisis in a bedroom on the Esquiline Hill escalates rapidly to the consul of Rome having a meeting to find out what the problem is with these Bacchic rites, basically. Like, what? why is everybody freaking out about the fact that this boy is going to be initiated? And then this, the story emerges from Hispala that the Bacchic rites have escalated from a small female-only um, religion of kind of dancing in forests into a enormous underground conspiracy where and the descriptions of the bacchanalia are amazing they're like there's people there's lots of music and people screaming and people dancing with their hair down and there's men having sex with men and men having sex with women and it's all terrible and then there's also these machines that drag people away and young men are specifically targeted so that they can be murdered by the priests so for reasons and also people are having conspiracies there to forge wills and um, undermine court cases and all of this is happening five times a month in the centre of Rome and it is going to completely undermine Roman society and the priests are hugely powerful and it's all very terrifying and eventually Hispala is kind of coerced into telling the consul of her experience and what she's seen and how bad it is and how scary they all are Um, and as a result the uh, Senate of Rome initiate an Italy-wide crackdown on Bacchanalia which we know about because we have inscriptions that come from all over Italy where the senatorial decree that says you can no longer hang out in forests and worship Bacchus and you can no longer have secret nighttime meetings they exist though we've still got several of them and as a reward for what she has done um, she is allowed to 
marry whoever she wants and also make a will, which is the kind of, like, shows how kind of rubbish it was to be a freed woman that the best you could hope for was the right to marry someone that you want and sign a contract. But she's given kind of a, a, a something closer to freedom and citizenship than she previously had um, and is rewarded for uncovering this huge alleged conspiracy. And the story confuses Roman historians. It's just really stressful if you try to get anything about what the hell was actually going on with Bacchanalia out of it because the descriptions are confusing and hilarious. But it's a really nice insight both into the the potential, like the kind of relationships that people could have between formerly enslaved sex workers having free, happy boyfriends who have access to the console. It's not a story that you get very often in um, Roman literature and history, but also the way that the story escalates through women talking to women, having dinner with other women who then go and raise the issue with their sons-in-law who happen to be the consul and how those networks of diplomacy that, are, you know, in private houses or how things actually get done in Rome. It's not just 12 lads standing in a white toga. It is people talking to one another in private and domestic situations as well. Sounds a lot more fun than any secret cult or religion that we have now. <laughs> maybe maybe a bit like 90s rave culture, but with yeah. um, with more bloodshed. Yeah, right. yeah. It's more fun than, you know, Freemasons. It's not just secret handshakes and standing around. <laughs> How did Christianity change things for Roman women? Christianity changes a lot. Um, because Christianity raises women's voices in a way that it was not possible in Roman literature and Roman culture. Christianity will, the early church will basically take anybody that it can get as a as a role model. <laughs> um, and it is particularly keen on raising up women's voices because their version of strength that is lauded in Christianity, in early Christianity, uh, is something that they don't think that women have. And so when women show moral, physical, spiritual strength as the Christians see it by, for example, being a martyr um, or giving themselves up to permanent virginity, um, then Christians can be like, look how good Christianity is. He can make even women strong and powerful. And the women that I put in the book as a kind of the best example of this is St. Perpetua, um, who is a Carthaginian saint from Tunisia, who wrote her own diary of her experience being arrested and imprisoned and kind of lightly tortured, if you can say someone is lightly tortured, um, as, uh, as a Christian attempts to persuade her to give up her Christianity and then um, a description of her execution in the, in the arena as part of some games. And it is the kind of writing that you get the sense that women did all the time, writing letters, writing personal diaries about their experiences, but which don't survive in any other context because there's no incentive for them to survive outside of Christianity. But it is intensely personal writing that was survived and read and copied and repeatedly referred to in Christianity because she was a martyr and she was a female martyr so they could read about it 
every year after she was martyred, it was read aloud and everybody marveled at how strong she was. And it is a very personal narrative of her sadness, her relationship with her father, her relationship with her son, her experiences breastfeeding that we have access to purely because of her Christianity, because she see she is writing about these things in the context of having to give them up to be martyred, which she desperately wants to be martyred, which is perhaps the least relatable part of the entire thing. But it is the only kind of first person narrative of of motherhood, of being a mother who breastfeeds and whose breasts hurt because she can't feed her child, of being a daughter and having their father educate them and then having debates with them and of, of you know watching other women give birth that exist from the Roman world because these things were not not that they weren't recorded we know you know know for example that Agrippina the younger wrote about her experience giving birth and having a breech birth but we only know about that because a man said Agrippina wrote about that and the rest of it has disappeared. And so we know other people, other women wrote, we know that they wrote about these experiences, but this only survives because Christianity changed the way that women were seen in a way. They could be powerful, they could be important to a community, they could have voices that were listened to rather than erased or removed or silenced in any way because... There's this brief period where Christianity is is almost egalitarian <laughs> um, and will listen to women and because it needs as many voices as it possibly can, will take any voice and that includes women and they will lift up and preserve women's writing and women's speaking in a way that uh, Roman non-Christian society really avoided and really would not do. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Boudicca is in this book, and we all know yeah. that story. So instead, I want to talk about a woman who might be described as the anti-Boudicca, Carti Mandua, and she was quite happy to reap the benefits of the Roman colonisation of Britain. What's her story? Yeah, Carti Mandua is the queen of the Brigantes, who are up in kind of Yorkshire-ish area, up in the north uh, of England. They're a big, big um, kind of... I really hate the word tribe, but they're a big kind of kingdom up in the north um, when the Romans arrive in 43 BC. Um, and where most people, in fairness, when the Romans came in 43, immediately were like, oh, no, I'm not fighting this um, and kind of bent the knee. But uh, there were a few people who really fought. And Cartamandra first comes to the attention of historians because one of the guys who really resisted the Romans, like the main guy who was the thorn in their side for 10, 12 years after the Roman invasion was a guy called Caraticus, who led like a guerrilla war across the whole of England and Wales and was a real thorn in their side. And he eventually was defeated in a battle. He 
gets away um, and runs up to the Brigantes where he assumes that he will be able to hide out for a little bit while he rebuilds his army. But what happens instead is that Cartamandua immediately contacts the Romans, basically. She invites him in, sits him down, sends somebody to the Roman army and says, I've got Caraticus, you can have him if you want, um, and hands over this great leader of the resistance to the Romans where he is immediately carted off to Rome and paraded as uh, he, you know, he has been a real problem for Rome for about a decade. Um, and Cartamandua is so... Um, anti-rebellion that she hands him over and in return becomes the kind of golden child of Roman Britain. She gets preferential treatment. She gets uh, loads of gold. You see in the archaeology, like all these shiny gold things start turning up in her kingdom. She gets loads of power, um, but also she loses her husband. It seems that her husband does not want to collaborate with the Romans as much as she does. And he leaves her, runs off to Scotland to start his own resistance army um, and occasionally will come back to try and invade her territory and throw her off the throne. And twice the Romans send people to protect her. So when she is in trouble, when he is coming back to try and throw her off or throw in some kind of tantrum because she's held his brother hostage... The Romans will send a legion, a full legion, to go up to fight them off, to protect her, to maintain her on the throne, to make sure that she maintains power and can keep controlling that borderland for them. Because it means if they've got a friendly queen in north, the, in northern England, then they don't have to put an army there. Basically, it's a win-win for them. Um, she's on the throne during the rebellion of Boudicca. So while Boudicca is marching around South England, setting fire to St. Albans and London and Colchester and marching around potentially up to the Midlands, Cartamandua is sat very quietly in Yorkshire, not getting involved in any way, shape or form. <laughs> she just seems to studiously ignore that the fact that the whole thing is happening. She definitely does not join the rebellion and she just kind of looks the other way until it's all over. Eventually, the Romans have to rescue her from her ex-husband because he just keeps coming back and back and they save her life by removing her from the throne and sending her to Rome to go and live a happy life in Rome. Um, potentially next door to Caraticus. <laughs> um, but, uh, and they have to give up that whole area. And when... When she is taken off the throne, a few years later, they have to invade it. And that's when you get them building forts all along the top of uh, northern England because she's not there to hold it for them anymore. But she is, um, yeah, she really benefits from the Roman from the Roman invasion. She collaborates completely um, and honestly does really well out of the collaboration. She, apart from the fact that her husband leaves her, but... She mostly just seems quite cross about. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how we've quietly forgotten about her, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I think the image of uh, of Boudicca as the uh, the kind of flame haired rebel is a much cooler one. In fairness, <laughs> more aligned with with modern values as well. I would say. Yeah, collaborate with the enemy is uh, is. Um, you'd think that during the British Empire, it would have been the one that they went for as um, the. <laughs> as the look at us we did we collaborated and it worked out brilliantly for us <laughs> but uh but post-war it kind of sounds more terrible so who's your favorite of the 21 women and why 
My favourite, I think, is Julia Felix because she's so incredibly ordinary. She is a businesswoman from Pompeii and we only know about her because when uh, Vesuvius erupted in 79, she was in the process of trying to rent out her business and she had put up a sign outside of her, uh, her business which offered it for rent and said... Julia Felix offers for rent her leisure complex with bars and restaurant and shops and apartment for five years. And if she hadn't had that, we wouldn't know she lived at all. And we also wouldn't know what exactly the, it looks like a weird villa um, in the middle of Rome, basically, uh, in the middle of Pompeii, sorry. Um, But with the explanation on the outside, which it tells you what is inside, you can tell that what it is is like a little... It's almost like a, a a little center like you might go to, like if you live in Milton Keynes or whatever, and you go bowling and you also go for dinner. You go for Nando's, yeah, yeah, you go and there's bowling. a cinema there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> there's a cinema. Um, and so, but what she's got, she's got little baths, um, which uh, are very lovely um, and will have each, like, you know, eight to ten people that you can have your baths in. Um, so exclusive and pretty and then she's got a little restaurant so there's a little takeaway part where you can just go and have your hot food and then go for a run but she also has a section where you can do proper reclined dining which is very very formal very very elite dining like you lie down and you eat little things that are brought to you by enslaved people off of tiny little plates right so that is that is really like in our pop culture idea of the romans being lazy yeah. and people feeding them grapes and all of that yeah exactly like stuffed dormice and uh, <laughs> um but that is something that is not accessible to like most people like that is something that the very rich do on a regular basis but almost nobody else does it most people just eat uh sitting at a table um but what she offers is a place where you can go and do that for special occasions so you can go out for a fancy dinner and lie down in a room. It's got a water feature. It looks out into a garden and you can kind of pretend that you are rich. It's like going to a Michelin starred restaurant for your birthday, Um, but you can go to Julia's house and she will provide you with that experience of nice food and luxury and rest. And you can just do it for one night and you can walk around the little gardens and pretend for a minute that this is available to you all the time and have a little treat and I think that that is such a lovely thing to exist that people went out for special treats in the Rome in the Roman Empire and that what they went for is quiet and 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 lying down to eat and also that there was this woman running this entire business by herself um running providing this concern there's evidence that she got a road moved so that she could expand the business and I just think that she's delightful as a as a character and as like the idea of her running this little business is great I secretly want to write a sitcom about her (laughs) have you eaten stuffed dormouse no god no it sounds awful Roman food largely sounds terrifying (laughs) it's always like put in a full cup of pepper like I'm all right, Ooh, thanks. How big is the cup? Ooh. <laughs> um, let's end this podcast appropriately with the woman you call, not unprovocatively, the last Roman, Galla Placidia. Who is she and why does she deserve that title? <laughs> um, yeah, so Galla Placidia is the last 
kind of Western empress. So I had to end it somewhere and I decided to end uh, the Roman Empire with basically the fall of Rome. And so Gela is the sister of Honorius, the Western emperor who does almost nothing, but she is in Rome when it is sacked by the Goths. She is kidnapped by the Goths and then she's then kind of dragged around Western Europe by the Goths uh, for five years. And she marries the king of the Goths, Atolf, and has a child with him and has this moment where she kind of almost makes it so that the Goths can become part of the empire, which is what they want. All the Goths want is to be in the Roman Empire and hanging out with Roman emperors and Roman emperors are very resistant to that. But for a moment, it is possible that she could be the person who makes this possible. And she kind of is. Her son dies and then her husband dies and then she is kidnapped back by Honorius's kind of second in command so that he can marry her much, much against her will. She hates him and she does not want to be married to him and she is forcibly married to him. But she is very, very dedicated to Rome as a city and to protecting Rome as a city throughout her entire life in a way that no one ever is again, really. So after she's married, she has uh, a son who then becomes emperor uh, when he is a small child. He is about seven or eight when he becomes emperor and she is his regent. Um, She's one of the only successful regents in all of Western history, like one of the very few where no one accuses her of trying to take power, no one accuses her of trying to do anything that she shouldn't do. She gives up the regency perfectly happily when he comes of age and gets married. She's like, yep, okay. And she's very invested in the church. But I decided to call her the last Roman. One, because apparently you can call anyone the last Roman. Like if you can call the people who signed the American Declaration of Independence the last Romans, then... I mean, that really is not, that really is nonsense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, that's stretching it. And this is the last of a stretch of that. But I called that because she is so dedicated to the city of Rome at a time when, so she's around like four, 450, she dies. So this is a very much into the time where military power and most of the kind of prestige of Rome has shifted to the east. We're real close to the final emperor in Rome and to the loss of Rome from the empire. And so much of the kind of whole courtly gloriousness has moved to Constantinople. But she fights so hard both for Rome as an important place in the Christian world. And she has this whole thing about Rome as the center of the Christian world that she fights for really hard and the supremacy of the Pope. But also Rome as the center of the imperial world um, it's moved to Ravenna for the most part, the court in the West. Um, but she insists upon having her coronations in Rome. She insists upon continuing to talk to the Senate, which people have kind of stopped doing. Um, she insists upon burying her children in Rome and having all of the kind of important uh, occasions of her life she has in the city of Rome. At a time when other people were kind of abandoning it or were not considered it to be something from the past rather than something from the present and so she's this she lives this amazing life as a woman who is kind of kidnapped twice and becomes an empress and is hugely important in the church and is like writing to saint augustine but also because she genuinely loves rome as a city and as a place and as an important imaginative place for people within the empire as well one of the best romans 
Yeah, she's a great Roman. There's not too bad, many bad things you can say about her, and it's actually really hard to say nice things about a lot of Romans. Emma, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This week's episode starred Emma Suthon and was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. I make the show with Esme Bright and Nicole Wong, and our editor is John Doughty. Till next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>